Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Cocado, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into the message. I'd like to begin by telling you that I like food. I do. One of the coolest things about food is how you can present it in some creative, fun fashions. And so if you take a look on the screen at some different types of food, you'll you'll notice in the top right-hand corner there, what looks to be these wonderful pieces of pie are actually cheese and crackers. What look to be cupcakes are actually cheddar biscuits with sour cream on top. And probably my favorite one on the top left, carrot cake is my favorite cake. This, of course, is ground turkey and mashed potatoes, your leftover Thanksgiving meal. If you don't love your in-laws and you want to give them a wonderful food gift, this is that gift. Those who love food have come to call such creations Dessert imposters. The idea is it looks like a dessert. Oh, but it doesn't taste like it. And that paves the way for us to talk about the idea of imposters not on the plate, but in the soul. Isaiah's uh, 58th chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning is all about heart imposters. What is a heart imposter? A heart imposter is a person who says the right religious words, who performs the right religious rituals, and attends the right religious gatherings, but remains fundamentally unchanged in their heart. Now remember we said as we've been walking our way through the latter part of Isaiah, and Isaiah 56 to 66 is the third and final section of Isaiah, and this last section of Isaiah talks about two different groups of people. And the two groups of people in the last part of Isaiah are the servants of the servant and the unchanged. The servants of the servant, those who belong to Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, who did the work of the Lord on the cross, and those who are unchanged. And we said that this 56 to 66 chapters of Isaiah take place in the time after the work of the servant. The new exodus, the uh, return from exile has happened. God's people have returned to God's land, but they are still stuck in the same patterns of thinking. Their location has changed, but their hearts haven't changed. They're fundamentally unchanged people. Interestingly, though, the way that Isaiah describes these unchanged people kind of changes up from chapter 57 to chapter 58. In chapter 57, the unchanged people were described as people who were unconcerned with God, sinning willfully and even gleefully. Here in chapter 58, the unchanged are quite different because the unchanged look changed. The problem with the unchanged in chapter 58 is not the outward appearance, it's what is happening on the inside. They're fraudulent, they're imposters, because they look the religious part, but they're not actually God's people. They attend the religious services. They do the religious things. And Isaiah wrote this prophecy years in advance to a generation that would be on earth long after he lay in the tomb. 
And Isaiah was calling out their religious hypocrisy and he was saying to them, God isn't concerned about what you're doing ritualistically. He's concerned about who you are internally. God wants you to evaluate not your attendance on Sunday morning, but the status of your heart. And so Isaiah begins addressing these unchanged people. It's interesting. We said that Isaiah is writing to people who have come back from exile, but he's describing their behavior in terms of how people used to behave before the exile. What he's trying to say is the same sins that got God's attention in a very negative way, that got you punished and booted out of your land, are still happening in your heart. Your, your, your location changed, but your, your heart didn't change. It's interesting that in his critique of imposter worship, he's repeating a theme that he began in Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, he called out religious imposters, but in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, I want you to deal with the fraudulent worship in your lives because if you don't, judgment is coming. Isaiah chapter 58 has a much more positive spin. In Isaiah chapter 58, it's not deal with the imposter hearts because judgment is coming, though it is. Uh, I want you to deal with your hearts now, he says, though, because restoration and blessing will come if your hearts change. So in chapter 1, it was get it right or else. Now it's get it right so that the good things can come. And here's what Isaiah is going to do in this chapter. He's going to expose and diagnose their fraudulent hearts. And then he's going to express what true God-pleasing lives look like because he wants the people to understand that the blessings of new creation are waiting. And here's his main point in this section. New creation people must live new creation lives. If you want to experience the blessing that God has prepared for his people in this new era, this new creation time, you have to live new creation lives because the blessings that God promised are coming to the people whose lives reflect the reality of the kingdom of God. So he exposes what is false so that he can then express what is true. That sounds like a two-part outline, doesn't it? It's the outline you got in your bulletin, so we're going to go ahead and follow that outline here this morning. The first five verses are about exposing fraudulent worship, and we're going to label fraudulent worship ritual without righteousness. Let me read these first five verses, and then we'll break them down. Here's what it says, Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now notice how the chapter begins. The chapter begins with a command to cry out. Now we have to ask a couple questions about this, and the questions we want to ask about this are two. Uh, the first question is, who is commanded to cry out? And though the text doesn't tell us explicitly, I think the answer is, 
Isaiah the prophet, the prophetic voice, this, this person who is the mouthpiece of God to the people, he is the one who is commanded to cry out. And then the second question is, how should he cry out? And the text tells us he's to cry out like a trumpet. No, the trumpets that the nation of Israel had were different than the trumpets we use. It wasn't like the kid in the middle school band who has his brass trumpet. Doo, doo, doo. It was actually a ram's horn, a shofar horn that they would use, and it would create this loud bellowing sound, just boom. And, and, and the idea was when the horn sounded, the people should pay attention. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were kind of two ways of getting people's attention. The first way was to raise a flag, and that's what all the nations around Israel would do. When the king wanted to get his people's attention, he would raise a flag, and the flag would mean, hey, everybody, show up and listen up, because the king is going to say something to you. But in Israel, instead of raising a flag, they blew the shofar. And when you heard the bleeding of that horn, the king wanted to speak to you. And I think that's what's happening here in this text. God is king of his people. And God, the sovereign king, wants to get the attention of his people. We serve an attention-getting God. In this passage, God wants to get the attention of his people because of, did you see it in verse 1? Because he wants to make known to them their sin. God wants to expose what is wrong so that he can make it right. Has God needed to get your attention about something that's happened in your life? Has God intervened in your life in a way that you know he's purposefully trying to get your attention? In one of the other prophetic books, we see an example of how God tries to get the attention of his people. In the prophetic book of Hosea, God talks about how he wants to get the attention of his people. And listen to these verses in Hosea chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, For their mother has acted shamefully. The mother, in this case, is the nation of Israel, God's people. Uh, the, the nation said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So the nation's like, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go uh, live my own way. Uh, verse 6, here's God's response. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but not find them. God was trying to get the attention of his people. And he said, here's what I'm going to do, something so radical. I am going to not give you what you want so that hopefully you will return to me and find what you really need. Has God done something to get your attention? Not every illness you face in life is God trying to get your attention, but it could be. Not every relational fallout that you experience is God trying to get your attention, but it could be. Not every door slams shut in your face is God trying to get your attention, but it could be. And so the question when something frustrates us that we need to ask is, God, are you doing this 
because you want to get the attention of my heart. God, I don't want to miss the lesson that you have for me in this. This is such a horrific, frustrating thing, and, and, and it might be something totally different. We, we, we don't say it must be because God is sovereign and can work in many ways, but it, but it could be. And so we want to ask the question, and that's what's happening in this passage. God tells his prophet to get his people's attention, but there's a big problem. And the problem isn't what the prophet is doing. The problem is the people. Do you see it there in verse 2? Remember we said last week, I can't help you fix a problem until you acknowledge that there is a problem, and that's the problem in this passage, that the people don't think that they actually have a problem. Why do the people not think that they have a problem? Do you see that there in verse 2? They see God daily. They delight to know God's ways. They're doing religious things, and so they think they're fine. And God is trying to show them that doing religious things does not mean you have a righteous heart. You can show up, but not be built up in the right way. You can come to church and learn about God but not have the presence of God inside of you doing the work of God. Oh, the people are frustrated. Do you see the questions that people are asking in verse 3? The people are saying, listen, we want you to show up for us. God, actually, at the end of verse 2, it says, the people ask of God righteous judgments. What does that phrase, righteous judgments, mean? It means they want God to intervene on their behalf and bless them and do the things for them that they want done. God, we want you to open the doors for us that we want open. God, we want you to give us the things that we want out of life. And so then the people began asking these frustrated questions in verse 3. Did you see the questions? We fasted, God. Did you not see? We humbled ourselves. Did you not take notice? Here's their mindset. Their mindset is, God, we did our part. Now you need to do your part. God, we, we did what we were supposed to do. Now, now do what you're supposed to do. But there's a reason God's not acting on their behalf, and we'll get to that in just a second, but we need to acknowledge how weird and wacky their view of God really is. Because their view of God is like a machine. Their view of God is they do what they're supposed to do, and so God should do what he's supposed to do, as though they pull the God lever, and he does the God things. As though God were like a vending machine. And they insert their quarters. I guess that would be dollar bills now in our inflation world. But we insert the money and out comes the can of Diet Coke or the bag of Skittles or the prepackaged sandwich. And God, I come to church and I pray. And, and because I prayed, God, you need to come through and answer those prayers the way I want. God, I sang the song. God, I even listened to Christian music all week. I was going to listen to secular music on the way into work, but I listened to KTIS the whole way. And God, you know that there are some songs on KTIS that are a struggle to get through. But I listened to the whole thing the whole time because I was showing you how devout and how committed I 
I was. And so, God, I did all the Christian things, so you should come through for me. Do you have that view of God? That God is like a machine that you can control? Hear this this morning. God is not a force we can control. He is not a machine that we use. He is the sovereign king of the universe. And God is not compelled or controlled by our choices. He is not beholden to our religious acts. You cannot in any way control our sovereign God. God does not owe you anything. Now, it's generally true. It's generally true that those who honor God, he will honor in turn. It's generally true that those who worship God will be blessed by God. So the question is, why is it not happening here? And verse 2 is super helpful for us. There's two words in verse 2 that really show us what's going on here. It says, they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. Here's the two key words. And if you, like me, remember the 1990s, if you're a fan of the movie Clueless, this is going to be your favorite sermon. Because the two Key words in verse 2 that unlock the meaning of this passage are as if. As if. What does it say? These people do religious things as if what? That lets you know that they're not actually this. They just kind of look like they are this. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. They look the part, but they're not the part. Because they look like they're righteous, but they're actually not righteous. And God says, you do all these rituals as if you were actually internally that way. But the problem is not your worship. The problem is your hearts. And ritualistic worship cannot fix an unchanged heart. Your imposter hearts in your ritualistic worship are accomplishing nothing. The problem is righteousness. God wants it. The people don't have it. And God actually exposes their unrighteousness in three ways over the course of this passage. He says, the true nature of your heart is revealed in the unrighteous ways you live. And he's like, you want some examples of that? Let me give you three examples of that. How are the people unrighteous? We'll look ahead to verse 3. It tells us, he says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. So he says, he says here's what you're doing. Here's what you're doing. You do religious rituals. But you, the reason you do these rituals is because you believe that God is going to give you what you want. You're, you're trying to do the fast so that you can get the stuff as though what your heart really values is the things of this world instead of the God of this world. You really treasure the creation instead of the creator. But you think if you show up at church, you're going to trick God into giving you the stuff in the creation you really want when really what he wants to do is have a relationship with you. So you show up and you fast what is a fast, by the way? Isn't a fast when we skip a meal or a set of meals to show that we depend on God more than we depend on food? And so the point of a fast is to change our hearts, right? To help us realize I don't need the things of this world. I need the God of this world. And God says, you're doing the fast, but you missed the whole point of the fast, because the point of the fast is to point you to the fact that you need me, but what you really are doing is trying to manipulate the fast so that you can get what you want by using me. And God says, here's what you're, what you're really like. When you're trying to manipulate me, your hearts are really like three things. Here, here's the first one. You oppress all your workers. This was economic sin, systemic injustice of 
using your power to exploit people. This was happening back in the ancient Near East. If a nation conquered another nation, they would force the women and the orphans and the children and the widows to work their fields for little or no pay. Kings would force people to do labor for them at no pay. Workers were oppressed. And when we talk about people working in fields for no pay, yes, we're talking about that happening in Israel, but some of you are like, you know what, that sounds like a little too familiar with what happened in our own country. And we've celebrated Father's Day today. We're excited for the fathers God has given us, but did you know that there's another day that's happening today? That there's a federal holiday that was just signed into law like a year or two ago? Uh, June 19th is called Juneteenth. And it was a holiday meant to commemorate a time when slaves in Texas finally discovered that they were free. Because though President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, those who were in the deepest parts of the South did not know that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued. And so two years went by between the Emancipation Proclamation and when black people in Texas found out that they were actually free. And June 19th, in the 1860s was the day that these slaves in Texas found out that they were actually free. And it's remembered and has been remembered among the black community, and now is a federal holiday, to remember the day when every black person in America realized that they were free. So God speaks about the oppression of people. We know that that was happening in our country, how tragic it is when we talk about how we want God to bless our nation when such injustice was happening in our nation. But I think the best example and illustration of that was the famous black abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And on July 5th, 1852, Frederick Douglass was invited to give a speech about the 4th of July to a majority white audience. And Frederick Douglass rose to give this speech, and he entitled his speech, What to the Slave? is the 4th of July. And can I just share a couple excerpts with you from that, from that speech? I find it so powerful. Frederick Douglass compared the nation of America to the nation of Israel, and here's what he said. I say, with such a sad sense of disparity, what is between us, I'm not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct, and let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes, lowering up to heaven, were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of appealed and woe-smitten people by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. That was the song of the exiles in Babylon. And do you see 
what Frederick Douglass was saying? How can we sing God Bless America when there are some in America that are only viewed as three-fifths human? How can we say this is the land of liberty, the land that God loves, when people are being whipped and beaten and maimed and abused in the fields? And it's exactly what God had said to Israel. How can you say that you love the Lord when you oppress people in your hearts? There was more than that, though. Beyond oppressing people, the second sin that the people committed, did you see it there in the text? You quarrel and fight. Uh, they fasted because they wanted God to be manipulated into giving them things, but when they didn't get the things they wanted, they began quarreling and fighting to try and get these things. James picked up on this. In James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, listen to what James said. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or with wrong motives. Why? So that you can spend what you get on your own passions. God says, here's what's wrong with your heart. You want the wrong things. You oppress people to get it. You fight to get it. And then this lastly, you're violent. You're, you're, you're violent in trying to get it. What does he say? He says, you hit with a wicked fist. What a strong condemnation. They were destroying and damaging people made in the image of God to try to get the things that should have been gifts from God. What was happening? The people were in their fields working, and when they didn't work the way that the masters wanted them to work, they beat them and they hurt them and they abused them to try to force them to get what they wanted. And is that not a sign of a heart that is far from God? When we exploit and use other people to try to get what we want, In our system of capitalism, there are researchers at Northeastern University that refer to a subset of our economic system called conscious or conscientious capitalism, which is when businesses work for the common good of society so that everyone can share in the profits and the advances. When there's a pie that keeps growing and growing and growing and everyone shares in a piece of the pie. But that's exactly what wasn't happening here. What was happening here is people were trying to get the pie to grow larger and larger and larger so they could get a bigger slice and give other people scraps or potentially nothing at all. And God said your heart is exposed by how you treat other people. And I think the reason that Isaiah focuses so often about economic sins is because Money stuff shows us the status of our heart. If you could have all the money in the world to buy all the toys and trinkets in the world that you wanted, but it would require you to harm other people and discard them as trash in your wake, would you do it? Would you take the world's toys if it meant hurting people in the world, 
who are made in the image of God? The answer to that question reveals the status of your heart. And that is what was happening in this passage. And God says very clearly, if your lives are an unrighteous mess, I'm going to ignore your worship. The reason your fasts aren't doing anything for you is because God isn't paying attention. The reason your worship songs aren't doing anything is because God has closed his ears. Why? Because God isn't concerned with what's happening on the surface. He's concerned about what's real in your heart. And so he's exposed fraudulent worship, but he then shifts to expressing what he wants in its place. And what he wants is new creation righteousness. And so verse 6 begins pivoting this passage and listen to what it is that God says he wants. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall speed up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, of the afflicted then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. In the ancient Near East, when a new king would come to power, it was customary for the king to share, in the, blessing, uh, to share the blessings of his new kingship with the people in his kingdom. And so what would often happen is when a king came to the throne, he would cancel everyone's debts. He would annul contracts, forcing people to work uh, with no pay for the king for a certain amount of time every year. He would take away all obligations for, uh, for people to perform for others. He would free the slaves and property that had been sold and taken out of the family line, he would return to the family which had sold it so that their inheritance could continue down through the generations. All of these things would happen when a new king came to power. And, and Isaiah is giving us a glimpse of all these things that a king would do for the people. This is what is happening right now in New creation, righteousness language. God's like, do I not want you to do what kings would do for their people? And, and, and there, there's a hint here. You have, to, you have to know the ancient Near East context that so you can read between the lines. But if you know the context, you can read between the lines. And here's what it's saying. It's saying a new king is in place. Who is the new king? See, it's so important for us to know that Isaiah 58 comes after Isaiah 53 because the servant has already done his work in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus, the servant, has gone to the cross to rescue the people of God, to take away sin and oppression. And now the people of the servant do the work of the servant as though the servant is king. And his people are sharing the blessings of the king's reign 
with everyone in the king's realm. If Jesus is king, he reigns over the whole earth, and everyone who lives on this earth is in the realm of his kingdom. And so the blessings of the king should flow to everyone who lives on the king's earth. Notice how the people who are suffering are the ones who receive the blessings from the people of the king. Who is it who receives the blessing? It's the homeless poor. It's the hungry. It's the naked. And what does verse 7 tell us? It tells us that there is a fast that God wants. Did you see that question in verse 6? What is the fast that I choose? And when we think of a fast, we think of a fast in terms of the ritual. The fast is the skipping of the meal so that I can show that I need God. But remember how Jesus said when he was with his disciples that the the bridegroom's people don't fast when he's with them? Because when the bridegroom is here, when the king is here, when Jesus is here, it's time for the feast and it's time for the party. The, The time for fasting is when you needed to know how much you needed God. But when God is here, you don't need to tell yourself how much you need him. You need to to enjoy being in his presence. And when Jesus is king, we need to spread his kingdom. So here's what he says. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? The fast that I've chosen is to feast with the hungry. I love that verse 7. The fast is the feast. Why? Because the fulfillment of fasting is that the righteousness of God would flow through you. If the point of a fast is to show how much I need God in my life, then if I have God in my life, the righteousness of God will flow through my life to the people God wants to bless. He says, it's not a true fast to feed the hungry. It's not a true fast to let homeless people come live in your place. Is not the true fast to give clothes to those who need to be covered. It's not a fast, he says, to stop hiding yourself from your own flesh. Your own flesh in this passage doesn't really mean your relatives. It means everyone who shares in common humanity with you. Every person made in the image of God. New creation righteousness is bringing the blessings of the king to everyone in the kingdom. Jesus picks up on these ideas in Matthew chapter 25. When he describes what the final judgment will look like, he talks about those who will bring the king's righteousness to the king's realm. Here's what he says, Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. 
the heart of a righteous person is shown not by showing up at church on Sunday morning, not by singing the Christian songs, not by buying Christian books, but by living a righteous life. You can hide in the pew, but you can't hide what you do. And Isaiah said there will come a time when God will evaluate the truth of our claims of being transformed by the gospel, not by the words we said, but by how we treated those who God loves. True transformation brings new creation blessings into the creation now as previews of the world that that God will one day create. There's a great example of that in a church, in, in our group or denomination of churches. There's an evangelical free church, Grace Evangelical Free, about an hour away from us in Fridley near the Twin Cities. About a year ago, the people of Grace got together. They raised a bunch of money and they bought a vacant house just down the block from where their church building is. And they renovated the house so that some group or family could come live there. And upon renovating the house... It was about a year ago, they welcomed into that house a family of eight from Darfur in the Sudan. Now, I've been around a lot over the last few years, hearing a lot of political questions about should we take in refugees from the Sudan? How much vetting should we do of refugees from the Sudan? You know what I love about the people from Grace Church in Fridley? I didn't hear a lot about them asking if they should take in the refugees. I just heard them asking, how soon can we buy a house and how many can we take? And so there is a family of eight Sudanese people. And people from the church learned to cook Sudanese food so that they would feel more welcome. They began taking them to English as as second language classes. They began sharing culture with them. They welcomed these people into their church to share meals with them. They even began a Sudanese worship service that would meet every Sunday afternoon in their facility. And now regularly, they share church meals together and their kids do Awana together and play together. And I can't think of a better picture of how Jesus wants his people to bless others than this church that blessed people fleeing from a terrible war who had lost everything, but found hope through the followers of Jesus Christ. Remember I said that in chapter 58, Isaiah said the reason God wants to expose his people is so that he can transform them, that they would receive the blessings from God? Verse 8, and then it's repeated later in the passage, catalog four blessings that God's people will receive when they live God's way. Did you see those blessings? If you live God's way, light will break forth like dawn. All throughout Scripture, light is contrasted to darkness. The good of God's light will shine in your heart when you live God's way. And, and, and then this, you'll, you'll get your, heat, your, your healing speedily. Now, I've yet to meet a sick person who's prayed a prayer like, God, I pray that you'll heal me slowly. God, I, I pray that this disease I'm facing, God, I, w- would you in six months take away this flu? God, would you heal my broken ankle next year? 
right? Everybody's like, God, could you heal me now? God, I, I, I got stuff to do. I got people to see. I got a job to do. God, can I get that healing like right now? And God says, when you live my way, your healing will come like that. And how many people are like, God, why don't you heal me? God, why don't you heal me? And God's like, get your life right, and then I'll heal you like that. And God says, righteousness will go before you. Remember we said that God's righteous judgments were when he intervened on behalf of his people? God's like, I'm going to intervene on behalf of you for your advantage in life the moment you trust me and commit yourself to me. And then this lastly, it says that God will be your rear guard. That's Exodus language. Remember when God's people came out of Egypt and they were uh, fleeing from the Egyptians and God went with them as a pillar of fire and as a cloud and God's presence was pictured as fire and smoke. Why? Because he was protecting his people. He was like around them and God's like, I'm going to protect you and be around you when your heart is transformed my way. Here's my favorite part of the blessings, verse 12. Remember we said that this was the generation that would come back out of exile, and the generation came back out of exile, and the land was just a pile of rubble. And God said in verse 12, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You'll raise up the foundations of many generations. Everything that's been ruined and destroyed, God can remake and rebuild. And maybe in your life there's been a lot that's been broken. God's like, I can rebuild that, and I can restore that when you come to me. But before we can finish this, we've got to tie this to the gospel because when God exposes and then God expresses how he wants us to live, it can come across like, you know what, God's just kind of slapping his people in the hand and being like, stop living that way and start living this way. Like, that was really bad. Don't do that anymore. Start doing this. And that's just moralistic thinking. God does not ever do that. What God does is he's coming to his people and he's exposing their bad hearts, not because he wants them to fix their hearts. God's not trying to improve their hearts. He's trying to get them to have a heart transplant. God's like, what you really need is a new heart. And again, that's why it's so important that the servant's work has already been accomplished because the way that God's people can begin living according to the principles and the precepts of God is by getting the heart of God implanted into them. And that's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ comes and he takes our bad heart and he kills it on the cross. And in the place of our bad heart, he gives us his heart. And if you are united with Jesus Christ, you no longer think the same way. You no longer want the same things. You're no longer desiring the creation instead of the creator. Why? Because the creator has put his heart in you so that you love who he loves and you think how he thinks. And I love how this passage concludes in verse 14. God's people get God's blessings. So look at this. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So way back before God's people entered the land at all, Back when they were on the verge of entering the land for the first time, Moses gave the people some blessings from God that they would experience if they lived God's way. And he recorded them for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And listen to this blessing that was promised to God's people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 13, says he, he, he made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field. God's like, if you live my way, you're gonna live in my land. You're going to experience victory conceived of as riding on the mountains, and you're going to eat the best food that the land has to offer. That never happened because God's people didn't live God's way. But God says, if you get this new heart through the servant, look at verse 14 again and notice how what they didn't get in Deuteronomy, they'll get now. 
I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of your father, Jacob. The blessings of God available to the people of God who have been transformed by the Son of God and his work on the cross. So as the band comes forward, we need to ask ourselves, has Jesus transformed you? And maybe this morning, maybe this morning you would say, I need that transformation in my life. I'm not sure if Jesus has ever transformed me, but I I want him to transform me now. And if you simply say, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart. I I give you everything that I was and and change me. I need you inside of me. I need to be connected with you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I give you my sin, kill it on the cross, and, and I'll take your heart as my heart, you can become part of the people of God so that you can experience the blessings of God. Maybe you've followed God for a while and your heart has started to waver and started to wander, and you've started to love other things in this world instead of loving the God of this world, and you would say, I need to return and build my life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.